am going to gather us um, together. By reading the Magnificat. Um, So hear now these words. um, Found in the Gospel of Luke. Proclaimed by Mary. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For God has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God has shown strength with God's arm. God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of God's mercy. According to the promise God made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Thanks be to God. Welcome to Emmaus Way. We are so glad you are here with us tonight um, for our summer series of Why I Am A. And we have Kate Bowler here with us. He's going to say, why I am a student of the prosperity gospel. And it's going to be really rich and wonderful. But before we get going, the kids have a community song for us. So, kiddos, take it away. so much, kids, for leading us and have fun back in the atrium. Like I said before, we are Emmaus Way. If you are new to our community, we are a community that is captivated by the gospel, and we are really glad you are with us. If you are new, or maybe you haven't gotten on the weekly fill out a yellow card. They're found on the table up in the front. Give us some information about yourself, and you can take a green card to get some information about us. Um, The weekly, I I put it together every week, and I think it's great, so I think everyone should get it. Um, But especially in the summer, like we are going to be, probably that's where we'll be posting about volunteer opportunities in the community. Um, Also, looking like some new home groups are going to be starting, and I'm sure information will go out about those through the weekly, so get on it. And it's only once a week, so it doesn't junk up your inbox. But enough about me self-promoting the weekly and the time I put into it. Um, Any other announcements? Any at all? I have one. If anyone wants to drive to Greensboro on Thursday night... The Emmaus Way, some Emmaus Way musicians are doing me, the Baptist, a huge favor. They're playing at the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship General Assembly in worship. Um, 
It's going to be, they're going to be great. I'm really looking forward to Tim Carlos's face when he walks into this, like, very moderate to progressive Baptist situation um, with 2,000 people. But come on down to the convention center, not the Coliseum in Greensboro, if you would like to hear them. Mark Williams is wearing spandex. Mark Williams. Got to spice it up somehow, you know. Got to spice it up with the Baptist. Um, but we are so glad you all are here with us um, in the summer. Looking forward to continuing our series on why I am a. Last week and the week before were really fruitful. And I know tonight will be no different. But before we get started, pass the peace. Get some snacks. Worship with one another. Not worship. Fellowship with one another. Sorry. I'm a little distracted. Okay, pass the piece. So two quick things as we're settling, uh, Molly and I remember, just a reminder, as is kind of our tradition, um, Sunday in July, the first Sunday, is it, is it the 5th, is that right? Uh, somebody's looking at a calendar. But we traditionally do a big kind of cookout type of meal on, on uh, right around the 4th of July. So when you come that night, we'll be probably meeting in the community room, um, grilling burgers and hot dogs and veggie burgers and um, that kind of stuff. And so we, we've often done, and we've, we haven't planned this yet, We've often done kind of a fairly diverse uh, prayer liturgy for the world that we live in, uh, which sometimes gets lost in the, the, the explosions of the 4th of July. So, uh, so anyway, that's, uh, that's, on, that's two weeks from now. So anyway, we're excited about doing that as well. And so anyway, it's great to see everybody here tonight. Uh, really excited. Kate, thank you for Kate's been traveling. She's working on another book. So you've been on the road like a lot, right? I'm kind of do you remember where you were this week? I think I, I was in Atlanta at one point. Yeah. And off to Salt Lake? Yeah, uh, tomorrow I'll go to Salt Lake. I'm doing like a lady celebrity book, so there's a lot of going to lady conferences. And <laughs> this one is about the production of celebrities, so it'll be exciting. Fan. We're going to talk a little bit about Kate has a, a wonderful book that has about been out two years now, two or three years, right? Called Blessed, that was kind of part of, uh, was the writing of her dissertation into kind of a major book. Um, and we're excited about this. We're going to talk a little bit about the prosperity gospel uh, tonight, which I think as I look around the room, there are people here who know very well what that is, and then uh, people who won't. And people may even have the question, why do you study that? And so uh, you've probably wandered into a little bit of the prosperity gospel, just flipping your channel on Sunday night. I mean, wouldn't that be the, what would be the prime time to catch a little airwaves yeah, of well, Sunday morning and really, really late at night. If you want to know seven keys to seven kingdoms by Mike Murdoch, that man is just 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> to <the> and <laughs> I think many of you guys know Kate was a part of Emmaus Way for about two or three years, way back in the, the yeah. Francesca's loft That's days. Right. We were, this was our first church before we turned evil, evil Methodist. And uh, <laughs> when you said, let's pass the peace and get some snacks, I was like, I miss you so much. <laughs> 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 yeah, Kate does worship in a place where a spill might be an issue. So, uh, but anyway, but it's so good to have you back. Uh, in many ways, we, we have these people who, uh, whether they're local or far away now, who've had a huge impact on our life as a community. And, and Tobin and Kate are certainly those people. And your mom now, tell us about that. You've got to. Oh, yeah, I made a human with my body. No big deal. <laughs> Just made a human after all. He's smaller before. Um, yeah, he looks like uh, Tobin, and he's up in the kids room, weeping over a cracker. <laughs> 
So that's fantastic. And many of you know, uh, Kate is, um, she did her doctoral work here at Duke. Uh, You may have set the record for, and and I didn't fully understand the full pain of this until I became a doctoral student, but you may have set the record for for drafts of your dissertation proposal. Like like how... 27. <laughs> in fact, I have, a, I have a memorable and tearful meeting with Kate at Mad Hatter's where at somewhere around draft 20 or 21, they asked her to change the tense back uh, to a tense that she'd used in draft three that was apparently the inappropriate tense for draft three. Edition 42. So what a process. Maybe Duke has a secret process for faculty that they plan to hire. But uh, So Duke is, uh, is, is now your academic home. You teach. Um, uh, you're in the history department. But what, what do you teach at Duke? I'm uh, at Divinity School. Divinity so School, I right. The, I teach the big American Christianity survey class. And then whatever the brand of boutique classes I feel like doing about trying to broadcast a network or SPV Council or things I find on the ground. Stop. Yeah. And so those of you know, Brandon would be kind of in similar kind of history side of Christianity. So we're used to having a whole range of people here from theologians to otherwise. Well, Kate, why don't you, um, why don't you jump us off the way you want. Maybe, maybe first delve into um, um, a little bit of definitional stuff sure. of, of maybe your own story and what got you into because you know interestingly when Kate's book Blessed came out I I was told this this really was like the first major historical study of the prosperity gospel which is something that you do see all over the airwaves and in the bookstores so it's kind of interesting that there's not a lot of people who study this but something drew you into studying this and I think we're really interested in what drew you in but also maybe some definitions for people who who may, may not understand what that is. So. Yeah, sure. I'm Canadian, and I'm from the crappiest city in Canada. It's called Winnipeg. It's right in the middle. And we have one road that goes quickly. And then one uh, week, I was driving along the world's crappiest road, and there was a stoplight, and I was naturally affronted by this. And I remember just sitting there, like, just permanently taking umbrage at this stupid stoplight, and saw that there was, it, there was a stoplight because there was uh, traffic crossing guards and a huge church that looked like a warehouse had sprouted out. And it looked to me like an American church. This is what I thought. It's a giant warehouse with a cross. Surely this is America. <laughs> and, uh, so, I know, so I started asking around, and, uh, and I started hearing stories, stories of a pastor who had celebrations called Pastor's Appreciation Day, where he would be given lavish gifts by the congregation. Molly, write that down. (laughs) It's a festive day. (laughs) And I just, I never forgot this one story of him having accrued on one of such days a motorcycle that he then rode around on stage. And that was going to be okay with me if it wasn't mostly my Mennonite friends who were going to this church and telling me all about it. And I thought, surely the cheese-eating pacifist Mennonites of the southern plains of Manitoba could not be going to what I thought was a very American church. And so I was, um, I think maybe we're like this with our hometowns, is I was um, pretty snobby about it, kind of like very dismissive of the endless smoke machines and um, dove releases. And like it was just, it was such a showy church and it made me bananas. And to be honest, to this day, the only prosperity pastor I will ever speak ill of 
is Leon Fontaine, who drove this motorcycle around, because it's my hometown. But everyone else I feel very benevolent and kind about, and I sort of give the benefit of the doubt. But I found more that this church was a kind of unusual constellation of um, very showy demonstrations of wealth, and then I knew that it had a large ministry for healing, and I thought, so what is this? And uh, at that time, I'd started uh, different. It was the sort of America never-ending school program where you're just like, oh, this is where Connecticut is. Now I live here because I go to school. So every program I went to, I just began sort of ruining family vacations and traveling around and visiting all these mega churches. And I found so quickly that it was incredibly racially diverse. It was very regionally diverse, denominationally diverse. I mean, the second, second or third largest United Methodist church is a prosperity megachurch in uh, Houston, Texas, Kerber John Caldwell. So if you go to the bookstore, if you find, and this is a true story, if you find a CD with a preacher where it is raining money on him, which is what I found in their bookstore, then uh, it's just another perfect example of how these constellations of, um, of a certain definition of faith and wealth and health show up in surprising places. So that's what I started to do is try to figure this out as a puzzle. And at first, as I'm kind of talking about it, it sounded, it was very sort of ironic to me. It's the sort of car accident view of faith in which you drive by and you look sort of sad and dismissive. Um, But the more I spent time with people, the more I realized that there was a kind of hidden underlying logic for this theology and a real earnest sincerity um, for why people attended these churches. And so that became my kind of intellectual obsession for the last, I guess, 11 years I've been doing this. We should ask Tobin how many prosperity churches he's attended on vacations. <laughs> That's a good man. That's a man who knows his own mission, right? (laughs) And so, you know, what you're describing is, um, to some degree, you're saying you've developed a pretty profound curiosity. Now, what is your, just out of, out of my own curiosity, what's your elevator speech when you're at a, yeah. uh, at a cocktail party, you're hanging out with friends who don't know this stuff, they maybe but don't know. But they desperately want to know they, they want over to know the buffet this, table. This, yeah, yeah, there's this <laughs> religious American landscape, yeah. they might think. What do you tell them? Like, okay, so yeah. they say, okay, what's a prosperity church? I'll say yeah. there are four themes. Faith, okay. wealth, health, and victory. Faith. And then I'll always say, it sounds like such a normal word, doesn't it? Words you might think of for faith are things like, go ahead, play this game with me. (laughs) Synonyms for faith might be trust, belief. Thank you, friends. (laughs) This always works. What's that? The synonym would be ready for me will. Will, yeah. They would would like that because it moves more instrumentally. They might say trust, uh, hope. And then I would say, but you are wrong. Um, (laughs) And then they really like that part. Uh, But in truth, they have a vision of faith as a spiritual power, one that's lodged within any believer that's unleashed through positive thought and positive words. And this kind of is drawn from the late 19th century in which Americans became very confident in the power of the mind as a spiritual force. So very often we think of it just as positive thinking um, and just little aphorisms that people say, like, everything happens for a reason. And usually I mean, like, you have to speak, speak life. You can see that there's just a, a, a world of bumper stickers, if you're looking for it, uh, that, that have a, a theology of positive words. Um, so faith will then not become just a hope or a trust, but a spiritual power that's unleashed in a very intense way. And so if you unleash faith in the right way, then you can expect certain evidences of it. First and foremost, in a healthy body, 
secondly, in, um, in finances coming your way, and this can be defined variably as sort of um, more than enoughness up to sort of Bentleys and private jets, depending on who's talking. And then a fourth, which I think of as more of an orientation, which took me forever to kind of wrap my mind around, which is victory. I think of that as a primary theme of the prosperity gospel, one in which the horizon is always, um, is always possible and before you, one in which every circumstance um, can be overcome through the power of faith. If you think of... Um, I mean, this in, like, historic black denominations, for example, which have rich traditions of social justice and then also a sense of structural inequality, you find that those often get very easily wiped away where all things can be overcome through the the righteous, faith-speaking individual. So, yeah, I go for faith, wealth, health, and victory. And it's interesting. I, I, this that's that's a sensitivity that I mean, we we from you know Mayus Way, our life has been very much oriented toward uh, non-white churches uh, in organizing. Though interesting, like your church, Duke Memorial, and many others have gotten really involved in this. It's less of a non-white thing. But ten years ago, when we were starting this out, we were, if you counted Immaculate Conception, we would have been probably the only white church that would have been in those kind of political organizing circles. And one of the things, and this has explained something to me, is um, in black pastors that I know, if at times people accuse them of having kind of a a health-wealth angle, they're very sensitive to that. Yes. Because obviously their narrative is different than ours because they're coming from a, an entirely different trajectory in American uh, history, not from privilege. But there's a deep sensitivity. Yeah. Any thoughts on that in terms of... Yeah, and we can see maybe that in a, in, a, in a couple different angles. It's very easy, I think, to be critical of the prosperity gospel if you're at Duke Memorial surrounded by the spires and the neo-Gothic whatnots and the stained glass. I mean, it's very easy to be dismissive of people looking for more than enough when, you, of you, when you've always had more than enough. Right, sure. So there's sure. that. I mean, I've always liked T.D. Jake's little quip that, like, um, money can't solve everything, but it can solve most of your problems. And I think <laughs> he's right. I mean, it can't actually solve most of your problems. We've all thought that, right? <laughs> so Haven't, has like, everybody in this room thought that, like, you know, yeah. just a, co- a 10,000 extra. Yeah. He's like, let's and, not be so dismissive right. <laughs> of what money can solve. And so, I mean, he's right. I mean, he deals with, he has all kinds of inner city programs in which he thinks a lot about how much money would make the difference in someone's life. So, in part, this is about definitions of what constitutes prosperity. Um, second, I think that... Um, Different kind of networks and cultural groups will find prosperity gospel to be diff- pervasive in different ways. So um, I cannot watch a reality program without seeing somebody, usually some kind of black pastor figure, give a, a, give a prosperity gospel. I was watching American Grit the other day, in which John Cena is very powerful and uh, encourages other people to be like-minded and powerful. And uh, there's this amazing guy who is a... Uh, triathlete and uh, at the end he said you know I did this well because I went to the Beijing Olympics and when I was younger I'd said I will go to the Beijing Olympics and I'm also a pastor I see this as a spiritual principle and then he went on about that and everyone nodded because it was very close to the if you just put your mind to it all things can be made right and so I, I have yet I mean I, I've seen it in America's Next Top Model as one guy had it tattooed on his enormous um, so uh, bicep slash pectoral <laughs> area which I did not pay attention to it was totally just read out loud to me by someone you were else Starbucks, I was you not that one. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah so it's, it's pervasive in different groups and I think it I think it has a slightly different valence which is I mean just the term blessed used to be frequently used in black churches just to say 
you know, there's, there's a way of seeing God through the beauty and the bright side in this, that you have to, you have to put on like clothes in a world that demeans your body. Mm. So, mm. Yeah, I think so. I think it, it, it's, it's read differently depending on who's using it to explain their place in the world. But it's I, fair to say it's hard to understand the culture that we swim in whenever it turns toward kind of a religious or existential or faith, however we define that realm, without some understanding of the prosperity gospel. Because oh, yeah. it has spread itself deeply in American culture. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, just to give you a sense of the scope. So we don't have good numbers on who, like how many people are prosperity believers. It's partly because it's just really hard to do numbers. Do you do... Numbers of congregations. If you did that, then, which is what I was obsessed with doing, um, 40% of churches that are 10,000 plus preach a prosperity gospel. So that's in part why it has like an enormous reach because the ones with the biggest media conglomerates, um, it's very top heavy. And so the biggest church in the country is, everybody knows? Liquid Church, that is right. Yes, exactly. Joel, Joel Osteen, Osteen? Yeah. and his beautiful, beautiful hair. And I've seen him up close, and it is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and if security weren't there, I would have touched it. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, he's the largest white prosperity church, but they have uh, what's what counts as the largest uh, separate Hispanic congregation in the country. About mm-hmm. 10,000 of his congregants are Hispanic, so they have their own um, Lakewood Church. And anyway, so it's, it's extremely top-heavy. It also owns uh, three out of five of the major media conglomerates. So it just, then they become electronic gatekeepers for whatever you watch. So, I mean, we can say millions of people go to these churches, but they mostly use them as spiritual supplements. So as someone who teaches in a divinity school, I know that people might be smiling and nodding at my like thoughtful prose on John Wesley, but at night they might be reading a Joyce Meyer book about how to overcome negative thinking. Yeah. So it's whatever's kind of tucked under their mattress. That's what I, that is spiritual. That is spiritual <laughs> is the clarification. That's what I want to hear about. Yeah. But there's, <laughs> a, there's a Beth Moore Bible study. And we press on. <laughs> yeah, that's the secret shame right there. Yeah. <laughs> Two quick questions, and don't let me just don't answer them if I'm taking the wrong direction. There, I think it'd be interesting to hear um, just locally what 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 is the prosperity uh, landscape in oh, Durham sure. or the Triangle, and then I just also want to make sure that people out there understand what you're talking about. So we may, if you have a question or two, yeah. but yeah, how about Lula? Well, the biggest, I think there's, there's a lot of prosperity mega churches in North Carolina, but they tend to be in the 2000, 3000 range. So they're not, they're not the people who are on TV usually unless they're like a local show. The biggest ones, the bigger one in the eighties was the Christian faith center, which is Mac and Brenda Timberlake. They used to have like matching sequin outfits and were like absolutely adorable. A lot of billboards uh, yeah. and Sunday night TV. <laughs> That's yeah. right. They're in Creedmoor. Um, they say they have 10,000, but that is a lie. <laughs> um, they probably have about 1,500 now. Uh, but they used to be really large in the 80s. And, uh, but the biggest local one is uh, World Overcomers. Um, what's his name again? I forget his. Anyway. Pastor Andy. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, so he's kind of our biggest local one. The largest in North Carolina is Steve Furtick's church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that, I think, and we can talk about that as the sort of future avenue of the prosperity gospel in which it's hybrids. It's not nearly an overall Pentecostal. It looks and sounds like white evangelicalism, but is, in fact, a very kind of thick prosperity gospel. Interesting, interesting. The, uh, and 
so just a quick pause. Um, I think Kate's going to talk, kind of is morphing about her own curiosity. We're going to kind of also talk about a, more of a, 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 a compassionate vision toward the prosperity gospel. But is everybody on board? A question or something like that that, would, that you can ask toward Kate, and then we'll, we'll keep going. Andrew, did you? So I'm, I'm very conscious that there's a sort of secular version of this. Yes, that's there's right. There's sort of Norman Vincent Peale, but they're very contemporary. Uh, it's called The Secret. Uh, yes. Right. And when I lived in Cape Town, I knew a lot of very, oh, and in San Francisco, I guess, a lot of very, what you might call, new age people. And there's a, you know, the universe instead of God will, you know, bless you if you do whatever. Which came first? Yeah. The new age people, like, Yeah, no, they were first. They were straight up first. Yeah, you're exactly right. And we can kind of see it in different strands. So the first strand is the new thought strand. It's a cluster of metaphysical thinkers and speakers who kind of develop most of the infrastructure for the idea that the mind produces is, is generative. Um, And this is at the same time as you have the rise of mesmerism, like you are feeling sleepy, which you might be (laughs) as I'm talking, but but all kinds of sort of like crossover between um, what they they did think of themselves primarily as Christians, though we think of them as metaphysicians. Um, That, if you just did like a this plus this equals this, so this new thought plus Pentecostalism equals prosperity gospel that in the way i'm describing new thought plus mainline plus which is just, which is like a weird a weird version of reform theology plus american dream equals positive thinking so norman vincent peel will borrow explicitly from new thought but he'll do it through his own reform so you can kind of do this plus this and you'll see different strands and you're absolutely right it is inseparable from american visions of 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 their country and themselves of, um, of bootstraps, supernatural and otherwise, of heady individualism. This is not something you do, you have to need other people for. Um, the sense that all things can be conquered. So the, the, the horizon is one in which you rush toward it, expecting it to yield. So this is, um, and though it's easily, as you're describing, in Cape Town, tons of prosperity megachurches, it's wonderfully exportable. So it doesn't require the American dream, but it certainly had a rich seedbed here to begin with. Yeah, yeah, I think you might be right. And in the 80s, Nigeria, combined with the sort of rise of um, neoliberal capital and the instability that they were experiencing, it became a very easy way to say, hey, you guys were already Pentecostal, and you're already now individualist because you have to be. Congratulations, here's a theology that really works for you. It's interesting. I mean, Jim and Gail would probably have more reference to this than others. But I know when we traveled to Africa and landed in Nairobi Airport, there were American prosperity gospel preachers on the airport, you know, televisions. That you know, you know, you're used to airport CNN, but it was airport inspiration network. You know, and that's how how obvious that is. And just as a point of reference, because I think this is, you know, one of the goals that we have is talking about traditions that we come from or ones that we might look at as like an auto accident Mm -hmm. without a sense of our deep implication on uh, in that if you remember a couple weeks ago when i was talking about evangelicalism if you remember a couple of the roots that we mentioned um are this whole idea of existentialism the idea of this the self that that emerged in our consciousness and in our lives not 
500, 600 years ago, but very recently in the last 100 to 200 years. And then pragmatism, uh, yeah. the, you know, trying to be pra- and, and evangelicalism was kind of a genius uh, toward taking those things and somehow locating the gospel in that kind of cultural context. And yeah. what I hear you saying, Kate, is in the same way, what, what the, the prosperity gospel is not only aligned with certain things that are significant in evangelicalism, but is another one of those cultural geniuses that takes multiple strands, yeah. puts it together in a cogent presentation Albeit with Dove releases, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but the, but but understanding the forces that 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 um, that are a part of it are critical to us because often we don't understand the forces that are a part of our own theological postures yeah. that we may not even think we have until we lose someone, we get sick, a relationship breaks down, something like that, and then we start drawing from these kind That's of right. theological reserves that we didn't even know we had or don't know where they came from. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, we had a question. Oh, have you ever seen any? I mean, we can, when we talk about the third little chunk, when we talk about, um, yeah, well, I've been to a million miracle crusades. I've mostly seen kind of crummy miracles, to be totally honest. Like, oh, I'm, your hip is slightly better. Your vision is dubiously improved. However, um, I have a close friend, Candy Gunther Brown, who has spent her entire career tracking, with traveling with doctors, tracing the kind of empirical. Uh, descriptions that you can have at miracle crusades and she would say that according to her doctors and charts which and she's she's just a really good historian um that uh that she did find demonstrable improvements in the things that they could prove on the spot like sight certain kinds of pain level so she would say yeah they're quite common um i would say i've always been very open and hopeful uh but in front of my eyes i've heard people describe miracles a lot and i don't doubt them but I've certainly not seen as much as I hoped. And Kate has done, I mean, I, I, her research on this has not been like just sitting in the back of a, uh, of a, a mega church taking notes, which is useful, and you've done yeah, that too. Fun. But you've, you've been up close to a lot of these people. You've been yeah. on the plane with Benny Hinn, <laughs> I <did>. right? <laughs> I did go to Israel and walked where Jesus walked with Benny Hinn. Have you ever seen Benny Hinn? On a t- he has like a Nehru collar and a famous sort of healed um, YouTube clip that went viral. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of, um, yeah, I've been to sort of money seminars and healing crusades and, but mostly I spent time, um, in a local African-American prosperity church, um, for about two years, just spent time, um, interviewing people, talking with people, figuring out what kind of difference it made in their everyday life. Mm -hmm. Well, take us, where would you like to go next? A little bit on the, on the yeah, compassion side? Yeah, maybe uh, let's talk a bit about compassion. I, um, I, think it's, I think one of the reasons why, even though I'm guessing none of you are secret prosperity believers, um, why it's really important to know a bit about it and to care a bit about it is um, if you're ever in a hospice situation, if you're ever in um, one in which tragedy has struck someone you love and people are trying to create a story out of it, uh, make sense of where they are and where they can go in a situation that seems completely unthinkable. One of the most common um, confusions and exhaustions I get from students is when they do their um, summer internships in hospitals. It's one of the most common things they get back to them is 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 prosperity. Is the how could this possibly happen if I just if I just believe? Um, there's a kind of spectrum from hard to soft prosperity that I describe. Hard prosperity has a very causal connection between faith and words and results. So you pray it once, and it will come to pass. 
And so um, it could be in a, it's a kind of heavily supernatural, very immediatist, very instrumental language of how faith works. And it's had to be prayed in the right way or... Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So if it doesn't work, then you have to kind of tweak the formula. But there is a sense that there is a formula. And then in soft prosperity, that might be more your Joel Osteens and your Joyce Myers. And they'll have the same infrastructure of faith that yields results, but they'll kind of map a more circuitous route to how it comes to be. So maybe... Um, Believe, speak positively, smile more. Your boss will notice you get a raise. This can still be attributed to God. So it might have a slightly different math, but it'll use the same infrastructure. Um, What I have found in just a million conversations with people in the tough parts of their lives who have a prosperity belief is that it very often got them through some of the tougher times in their lives, that it was the kind of armor that they could put on that said, I am worthy. Like, God cares about the details of my life. Even the most, I mean, we all make fun of the, like, God in every empty parking spot kind of person. Like, oh, it's a miracle. It's like, no, it's coincidence, and you're going to be okay if you walked a little bit farther. Um, But what's beautiful about it is the sense that they kind of comb through their biographies and find delight in God's presence there. I find that endlessly beautiful the kind of intimacy that they experience with God, that their daily lives are are theological fodder for something um, lovely, for a new opportunity. And sometimes, I mean, it it produces real differences. So um, people with chronic pain who have to do a lot of emotional labor to get up in the day and to go to work, that those people find Joel Osteen's daily inspirational tweets really helpful for them. Something that just says, look, you you can produce a difference in your life just... Um, because there is a God who who is making sure that the wind is at your back, and um, and that circumstances will line up eventually for your good, and that is a it's a certain vision of God, right? As benevolent, as caring, as a tender parent who wants who's just kind of organizing everything to make sure it turns out. This, of course, is um, when people use their biographies as the primary theological fodder for their lives. This, of course creates its own huge debacle, which is then what happens when things go badly. Mm. Well, then surely it has to be me. I mean, uh, the, the, you're the only variable in an equation in which the formula is designed to work. I mean, that's the thing about a language of formula. It has to be repeatable results that work every single time. And they believe that. And that's part of the certainty and the kind of bedrock that they stand on. And so there's just a ton of books that will that'll be lists that they can go through that will help them figure out what they did wrong. And the worse it gets, the more it, it heaps condemnation on tragedy. And so you'll just see people desperately trying either to make sense of what they did or to assume that things are just about to turn around. So I, I, I've interviewed people who, I mean, this is where the interview process broke down, is that, is that people felt unable to speak aloud some of the worst things that were happening because they didn't want to make it true by negatively confessing. So people with illnesses that they can't say, um, people in hospice tell me all the time that uh, they'll have people who, until the very end, will be unable to say that they were going to die. And that it's like a bomb that goes off with their families who are then unable to walk through a grief process with them. So I I think there's just a tremendous opportunity for compassion when people experience both that in, that sense of intimacy with God and yet that that intimacy makes God into a kind of monster who, um, who is punishing them for faith um, not done well. So it, 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 I think it opens up a conversation opportunity for us in which we can say, 
How do, we, how do we allow people to preserve that sense of intimacy without then feeling like they can make a perfect story of their lives in which all things have to be made right or else God is no longer good? Is it in what, you know, that idea of kind of doing this kind of biographical theological work, is it, is it, is it personal agency? Is it the idea that, that I, I need to be able to describe God intimately and individually to me, and I need to have, and, and, and that ability is related to all of these agentic things I have around my life. Like, do I pray right? Do I think right? Do I, is, that, is that the attraction? Because obviously it is beautiful when people are narrating God's presence in their life. What, what, what is the attraction? Because obviously you're describing a really stark, dramatic end of that story is when things begin to go wrong, yeah. that then re-narration tends to happen. Yeah. What, what is the attraction? Well, I imagine the prime, I mean, everyone thinks the primary attraction is money, right? That yeah. like it's prosperity gospel. This is about rich people who just want to be rich or poor people who are aspirationally wanting more or, and I think it's, it can be fundamentally about hope and hope for control in a chaotic world in which so little is actually, I mean, if you think about it, so much of the building blocks of what makes your life work is stuff you just, you just have no control over. Right, like most of the walls that hold up your life are just, mm-hmm. you didn't build them and you mostly don't get to keep them up. Mm-hmm. So for, for this kind of theology, it's a beautiful way of articulating a sense of, of spiritual control. There are things you can do. There's always money you can give and a prayer you can give. And, and this if is the not, bootstrapping you're talking that's about. That's yeah. right, yeah. And if not, then it's just a season. And then your job is to wait. And so I think the idea that there's a way we can earn our way out of the worst, of the worst stuff in our life. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I, no, 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 absolutely. I, I mean, you guys know, I've shared this many times. My own family was deeply impacted by this kind of thinking. My, uh, my uncle uh, was kind of the blue-collar millionaire of the community. He formed a steel-fabricating plant, sixth-grade education. I mean, perfect American story, right? And employed a lot of the county and was a huge creditor at PTL. When it went belly up, I, I mean, it. I mean, praise you know, the Lord, the it, it, '80s televangelism network that went bust and yeah. ended up with jail sentencing. <laughs> and, and, and you know, and I've talked to you know when my mom got ill with cancer. I mean, the, part of that culture was to not name that, yeah, to not be able to speak of it. I mean, we didn't speak of it because that kind of grieving was was antithetical yeah. to. Uh, it, it, it represented not having faith. Yeah. It represented not being gospel people. And that was our kind yeah. of washover between Southern Baptist fundamentalism yeah. and this prosperity gospel that I don't think people were ready for because it it invaded our lives because it was so ubiquitous on the airwaves. Yeah. So it's just, well, it, and, it, yeah. And it's, I mean, in white evangelicalism has a perfect way of describing, I mean, I've had a hard time, I've had a hard time getting out of, the belief that like I'm special, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and we get this with like we're uniquely chosen by God, blah blah, knit together, blah blah, right? But like, I think <laughs> somewhere in there is a story about how your life is supposed to work out. Mm-hmm. Is that like? I mean, this is one of my first weeks at Emmaus Way. I remember Tim saying, um, "If you become a Christian, your kids aren't necessarily going to be smarter, and your life isn't going to get better necessarily." Mm-hmm. And like, I was like, nah, "I don't have kids, and my life is going amazing." <laughs> <laughs> Surely this gospel is not for me. Um, but like, I mean, and this is kind of the last thing I, I wanted to talk about is um, after I got sick, I I was really 
shocked by the way that people needed to narrate me into mm. a story. Like that they that somehow my cancer was part of a story they needed to tell about their lives, and that's been that was hard. Um, I mean, because part of it is in the language people use about cancer. I mean, just that you're fighting when somehow you're actually. Yeah. I mean, like almost everything you do is almost entirely passive. Like you sit there and they put things in your body and then you deal with it, usually quite quietly. <laughs> like there is like no like martial arts training up, sequence. Not- <laughs> like there's not like there's no montage in which I'm like, fighting cancer and overcoming it and like wearing ribbons and like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, and I think like we want language of agency because it sucks so badly. Right, and right, right. what I so I wrote this article this op-ed piece about what it was like to study the prosperity gospel and then, and then to be suffering in the midst of it and people's reactions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got about 1,400 emails over the next couple months. And it was, um, and a lot of it was just people trying to explain, to put me into a story that they could live with. Mm. And, uh, and some of it was really sweet, like, um, I'm a professor. I live in Calgary. I haven't been that nice. <laughs> there was this Sorry, really, I was, was, I was like, meeting you at the conference. Like, I'm just not that nice of a person. You seem really nice. This makes me feel really bad. <laughs> like, I'm no, really screwed. Yes. If nice Kate is going to this, oh my it was gosh. really sweet. He's like, I think that's why I'm an atheist. Is I don't know why I live this long. <laughs> and that's like I just sort of appreciated his email because most of them were um, long descriptions of, of the death of someone that they loved, uh, last moments, uh, a lot of sad dads and sick kids, and um, and then trying to explain. About forty percent of them were trying to put this in a story about how um, how there was this was going to turn itself around. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most popular, I'm mean, best-selling. Um, Christian women's books right now is this horrifying book called Bronner about a mom whose kid it's a nonfiction book or the kid dies in the pool and um but God was telling a better story like mm. for who like yeah who's this story for and like why does it we yeah. have this view I think that like that that somehow being storied that wrapped up in a story is somehow empowering to everyone and i think it can be this like really pernicious thing in which we overly instrumentalize other people's lives that that everything i have to be inspirational i am an oracle who has just like we we're talking about has seen the other side? <laughs> we're saying that sick people. Yes. The idea is like that that you've seen the other side. Yes. Tell me the secret. I will truth tell you all about it. Yeah, it's going to do that next week, seven thirty tonight. It's a weird ministry I have. Yeah, and um, and that like and that in suffering that because that I will learn important lessons that will justify the lessons that the, the descriptions that they want to have about who God is. So God has to be from. I have to get better for God to be good. I have to, um, there has to be a way in which my family's life will be improved for God to be good. I mean, like, I can't describe a God. And I, I was really stuck on this for a while. Like, I can't describe a God where it would be better for my kid not to have a mom. Mm. Like, what, what story is that? And so I thought, mm-hmm. it took me a while to, like, come up with a vision in which, like a life in which I don't have to have my own prosperity gospel. Right, right. And um, it's really hard. Like, I was trying to find, like, a wellness book, like, just like a take your vitamins kind of book. And, uh, 
And it was almost impossible to find a non-prosperity version. Oh, I looked sure. at Jillian Michaels. I like her. She's very enthusiastic when she does uh, jumping jacks. And um, <laughs> she had this, like, wellness book. And I thought, cool. And, like, the last tagline was, it was like, and you, too, can experience unlimited happiness, health, and wealth. I was like, where did money come in for you, Jillian Michaels? But it was, I mean, in wellness, in yeah. um, anyone who's a personal trainer who also has a life philosophy... I mean, prosperity gospel is everywhere. Oh, thank you. I wore waterproof mascara. <laughs> so it's, um, how do you find a vision of God in which God can still be good and beautiful and life can still be rich, but without the guarantee that things have to get better for that to be true? Right, sure. Finding a vision of that in this culture has been really hard. I mean, that's a, I, I, you know, that's a, a pastoral point that I, I'd love to just kind of, if I could grab it as a physical thing and throw it in the air and let it all land on us because these kind of theological logics are pervasive. They're everywhere. They're, they're, we're constantly kind of bouncing against them, even guiltily, like, I think in this, but I'm supposed to think that, right? Because it's everywhere, and you see how deeply significant that is. Another thing that I think is really worth... um, maybe listening and thinking about is um, one of the things I, I would love to do is listen to this podcast again and listen to Molly's last week because that was one of the, that was some of the work that you were doing Molly last week is really saying what we're striving for a notion of God's presence in the world that doesn't end up with one of these horrifically painful dead ends. You know, that you're on a good run, you're rolling sevens or whatever is a good roll, but ultimately you know you're going to throw the dice and you're going to be stuck with some sort of failure, some sort of illness, weakness, that sort of thing, and now you've narrated yourself out of God's love or you've narrated God as a non-loving entity. Yeah, so this was me at Lent. I, I, I had a really right. tough Lent. <laughs> like, I am normally, you know, just benevolent and good, and I was swearing like a crazy person and I was like what is going on with me like that is a lot of f-bombs for like just a small Canadian and so I it took me a while to figure it out that it started on Ash Wednesday and I like to go Catholic for Ash Wednesday because they are amazing at being sad right they are just beautiful at being super sad and I wanted to be sad in the right way Uh, I went to Catholic school these they have an A game and I wanted it and uh, so I went to this um, I went to this church in Atlanta and as it turns out and I'm sure it was a lovely church filled with lovely people um, but it was the, when the pastor started his uh, homily he described Lent as that time where we get to devote ourselves to being quote a little bit better and you could do this kind of stuff in all kinds of ways you can be a little nicer at work you can give a little bit more to a charity. You can invite your neighbor over. This is a chance for us to be, quote, a little bit better. And then he starts <laughs> doing the ashes to ashes, dust to dust, with the cheerfulness of the dwarves going off to the mines. And like, if you think about the words, it's like ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Like, do dust, we will return, peoples. So I realized at that point, And I just, and then I was losing my mind over stupid Facebook posts. Like someone would post like a Christian celebrity having an interview where she would say something like, um, 
you know, I just realized that, like, if I just put a little bit more in, that God was going to bless my business in amazing ways. Surely we have such a good God. Mm-hmm. And then it had a little, little tag that was just like, a little life in the midst of death. <laughs> like a, a flat. That like, got an F-bomb. <laughs> I, was like, I was just like swearing at this, swearing at that, swearing at my poor mother-in-law who was talking about her neck being saggy and aging. And I was just like, <laughs> I described aging as a, quote, effing privilege to her at a Starbucks, which she was very sweet about. But like, I was so mad. And yeah. I couldn't figure out why I was so angry until I realized that everyone was trying to prosperity gospel my Lent. Like, this was the time in which everybody else was supposed to understand what it was like to be me. Mm -hmm. That, like, we all just for a little chunk have to walk towards our own deaths Mm -hmm. and, like, Mm -hmm. face it down just for a second Mm -hmm. and say, like, we worship a God who died after he begged for his life. Like, this is a tough kind of love in which it can be found in terrible places. Mm -hmm. And I wanted everyone to just, like, sit with that for a second. And when they just Mm -hmm. tried to cheer the crap out of me, (laughs) I just (laughs) lost it. So I I swore for, like, all of Lent. And just really devotedly. And then uh, then at the end, I was having brunch with my friend Blair, and um, she was describing about how her death thoughts were back. She was describing how her dad has early onset Alzheimer's, and every time she feels like her memory is slipping, she she gets terrified. And then she, you know, she could take a test and find out, but then she would know, and what could she do with that? Mm-hmm. And while she was telling this terrible story, I realized I had this horrible smile on my face, and I was getting happier and happier. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm such a terrible person. It's just that, like, it's just that I'm not alone, you know? Like, sure. like we have, like, a bajillion of us have a vision of, like, a fear of the future and, a, like, a, a terror that things won't work out or just, like, a desire to look the other way. And just not being alone for one second was... That was the end of the swearing. It was, that was my last F-bomb. And it is funny how, I mean, this is, I, I think this is why people like yourself and others who have committed their lives to study theology and historically how we get in these places. Because, you know, theology is supposed to engage a conversation, whether, whether people approach it from a theistic or a non-theistic side, it's supposed to broach a conversation on life and death and reality and meaning. Yeah. And isn't it interesting how theology and our and our culture is in so many ways a barrier yeah, to it's those a very subjects? Well, I don't understand why I thought Christianity was a self-improvement project, but I think I did. Like, as much as I had this sort of like, you can't earn your way to salvation... Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I think I just thought like this would make me better, more disciplined, even just being spiritually focused. Like that, I was improving myself. And then when you're just off the progress train, you're just trying to live beautifully in the moment. Then I realized how much like earning and discipline. It was just like sanctification on steroids was becoming a way in which I didn't really understand like the nature of the gospel. I didn't understand that like. It makes sense now why, like, the weak and the poor and the widowed and the imprisoned, like, that's where you get an angle of vision into who God is, is when you have, when you just have to let go of the progress train. Like, you no longer are someone who's trying to get anywhere except 
to have a better view of who God is. So, yeah, it just, the prosperity gospel makes more sense to me now. I get why people want to feel like they're getting somewhere. I think we just want that so badly. Sure. But it takes, and I don't think you have to suffer to do it, but it's, there's nothing fun about letting go. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you're describing something that's amazing. I mean, things that we try to do every week uh, is talk about living beautifully in the moment. That can be deeply offensive. In the, it, it, or like sometimes we talk about the, the Eucharist table being a confrontation to our own mortality. The idea that every time we go to this table, we're admitting that we're not self-contained entities, that we need each other, we're not in control, we're relationally connected. These things are, are yeah. largely yeah. offensive concepts because of the unique context yeah. about how, how faith and theology... And, and, and obviously, Kate is describing some... some very compassionately, that was the angle on this, but some pretty intense abuses that happen either on a personal or a large-scale thing. Because it's probably not very hard to be, um, to be racist from this viewpoint, to describe groups of people as being not faithful, not sure. that sort of thing. So. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I've been to one too many mega churches where I walked through an aquarium to get to the main entrance where it said, For I will make ye fishers of men. Like, that is, like, I've just been to a lot of those places. And, like, it makes sense why the gospel, people want to make the gospel shiny and attractive and useful, right? Don't we just want our gospel to be useful? But it's an over-instrumentalizing of faith, right? It's a this for that. It's a transactional way. And we, I mean, we all do this, right? Like, it's a transactional way of thinking that, that it earns us something. I mean, for the academic snob, it's like, better insight, a keener perspective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, there's a million ways to instrumentalize our faith. Was that a... That was a, that was a hand? Yeah. 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 So, I don't even know, like, how to ask this, but I, I've often, like, cringed when I've heard... Like, I've had family members who give me dolls, you know, and they're like, you'll love this! And I'm like, I can't listen to this! And then I've had friends who have gotten cancer, and, you know, they, they have that self-talk of, like, it's okay, God's good, God's all powerful, you know, like, having these... And I'm just like sitting here in the middle of it, and oftentimes like I have told my friends like, oh, you're just being a Debbie Downer, or like, why do you have to like be so critical, or you know, like, I just I'm trying to understand like how without one of the things I appreciate about you, and I was telling my family about you today, is that you talk about the prosperity gospel, and you're not like crazy judgmental about it. <laughs> um, and I'm like, no, it's like more of a historical context. But like, how do you? operate differently or like what is different about how you operate based off what you learn without it being like oh you're just not positive all the time yeah yeah because positivity is like a fraught word right so i mean we've all seen the rise of happiness studies that like smiling changes are that we can you know we can behave our way into different emotions there's all kinds of ways in which um in which happiness is an american religion um and then there's and then there's a rich kind of religious history of how people try to produce produce happiness and see it as a theological good. So new thought um, from you know new thought to Norman Vincent Peale to Robert Schuller. I mean, there's just a million versions of it. So I, I struggle with this because behaviorally, I'm like the best prosperity believer ever. 
right? Like, I'm just, like, constantly cheery, and, like, I was just, I have been tanking on these stupid cancer trips to, like, just tanking, uh, and I've been, like, smiling all the way down. <laughs> but the truth is, sometimes I find that, I find that there is a tight connection between behaving in such a way that I can, that I can make tomorrow better, and this is partly because I think there's a couple, like, maybe maybe the thing about happiness, I haven't really thought about this, so you're, like, pressing me in a good way, but, like, maybe that we just have to think of there's certain guardrails around it. Like, one barrier should be our mind does not create spiritual realities that change material things, right? Like, and that's a way in which happiness is constantly used. If you say positive things, then positive things will happen. That's probably bananas, theologically speaking. On the other side... It's that um, I think we also think that sometimes just our behavior, our, our, our production of affect, we have like a secular version of that where we think our production of affect is going to like make people's lives better. Like, like life depends on you. And I think there's a theological error there in which like you being happy is not necessary for God to be God. And in fact, there's many beautiful people who wrote gorgeous theological things who were super duper unhappy all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Aquinas. Um, <laughs> but there's a middle space, I do think, in which, um, and this is different, I, I, I sometimes like the evangelical distinction between happiness and joy, but there is a way in which we can be lifted up by the Holy Spirit and experience things that like, we're not producing. So I think it's like that sense that we're part of this like, emotional machine in which we find error. But man, like some of the most absurd joy I've ever experienced in my life has been in the last few months. And it's just, I mean, it's just been God. I mean, like, I can, it's like, I just, I'll have a week in which I'll think, wow, I didn't try at all. Like, you just made me so happy. <laughs> like, thank you, God. And sometimes I'll have to pray for it because I'm like, this is the worst week ever. I want to punch everybody. And I'm swearing like a crazy person. <laughs> like, let's, let's up our joy quotient a little, <laughs> Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, I think it's a real gray zone. So I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a theological puzzle, that one. I like where, Kate, use the time you want to here. You're doing a couple of things here that I think is really powerful as you're theologizing in the midst of what you've learned. I mean, because there is this sense of, of we, we study the traditions around us and we listen to them in the ones that are within our own stories because there is this impulse in community to, to, to be maybe appropriately corrective. And I think one of the things that you've said here, and that was so well said, is that your approach to the prosperity gospel has not been a, you know, blessed, these people are bananas. You know, I mean, I mean that, that wasn't the subtitle. <laughs> you know, you know you, you've, you've really seen some, some, some things that are deeply beautiful in the tradition, but you also have sounded some pretty profound warnings about this. And um, so I, what would, I, I'd love for you to continue to theologize with us a little bit of how do we make our theological way in a world that, that is permeated by this. Also, feel free to take questions if you want as yeah, well. Yeah, sure. I don't want to... I think I we're feel good. Like we're, yeah. Are we timey? Okay. We, like five minutes and then we're on to... Yeah. Okay. We, we have two songs and the table. That's what we, and so, a liturgical dance called and, Happiness. And Mark, Mark, Mark needs five minutes to get the spandex back on. <laughs> that's right. So that's and be... all this is tearaway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's pretty awesome. I mean, Mark, you, Mark, I could see his eyes spinning. You know, you were talking about smoke 
smoke yeah. machines. He's thinking, is there a way we could be like, I could be lifted or, or <laughs> I could be lowered in yeah. here. We'll, well work of, on that. One right? of my favorite little like realizations in the last little bit is I did one time see a man almost choke to death on his fog machine. And um, <laughs> like, it was actually in South Carolina. And I, he was a man that I had been kind of following for a while. And I thought he had the sweetest dad ever. And that he was like the terrible son that I wanted to punch in the face, like with his distressed jeans and his super jacked up, like... He had a for-profit gym instead of, like, any kind of ministry to the area. And I just, like, he was not my favorite. And so when he started choking to death on his fog machine, I think my, first, a God. my first reaction was like, hmm. So, but um, anyway, I made, like, a little joke about the fog machine thing in my article. And then I got, like, a flood of letters from people saying that they were the person that was responsible. And my favorite part about that was they were not part of the church that I had visited. <laughs> There's like, just like a host of people around the country trying to murder their pastor with Bob Machine. Just like, right? It's a whole tech. subculture. Like, just one tech person who's just like. <laughs> so, that, made me, that made me really happy. Yeah. So we have time for a question if you have any have secret thoughts and feelings. Deep down. I don't know if you have time for this, but you asked my biggest question, which is like, how can God be good and all of this shit happen in life? And and you kind of expressed it so well, but you didn't follow up, and I kind of want to know what your answer is. About, um, the answer to the theodicy question: How is God, how is God good and fair? Which is a yeah. driving, which is a driving theme behind right. all this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm a historian, which means I always punt like every 100% of the time. Like, you should ask your fellow theologians. Um, but I'll try to give you an honest answer. Um, I think I think I don't. I think I don't understand how. I don't think there's a math of why some people live and die. I don't think. I've given up on the idea that God has a wonderful plan for my life. I actually don't think he does. Um, not in a terrible way, but I just don't think there was some kind of magical path that I was supposed to follow, and then things were going to be the way they were supposed to be. I don't think that anymore. Um, but I do like experience God so intimately in a weird, like in a way that I didn't expect. Like when I was in the hospital, I just felt joy. And I thought, I mean, they really thought I was going to die right away. And, I, and afterwards, and I felt it for months, like I felt it for several months, just like this weird, sustaining feeling. And I kept saying to people, like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to the way I was. And then kind of like, please, God, don't take this away. Because I knew I needed the feeling to like keep doing the terrible stuff that I had to live through. And, uh, and it was really helpful to kind of ask some of my theologian friends to be like, what is going on? And I had some great descriptions of like, well, Augustine describes it like this kind of, but like just that sometimes God shows up unbidden, just appears. And that, um, like, I think that's kind of my anti-prosperity message in a way, like the thing I maybe believe in the most is that um, there was a God I didn't produce and I didn't earn and I didn't make who just showed up in the worst moment of my life and made it bearable. Like when I thought I was going to have to give up my kid and my husband and this gorgeous life that I, I can barely believe that I got to have, you know. So I think it was just that experience that made me feel like, even though I can't make a story out of it, like that it was real in a way that I don't have to earn. 
And that sort of made the difference, I think. And that's a real, I mean, it's a really different narration than the one we've been taught. There was no formula. There was no like, and then I prayed the special prayer. Right, right. There was right, no special right, prayer. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when you're, you know, and you're traveling in obviously unmarked territory for your own life, um, you can see the power of wanting to know that there's a map. Yeah. And, and if you just ask the right person yeah. or journey the right way, the map will carry you through this. Yeah. And you're describing a mapless That's right. existence yeah. of, 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 of tears and joy and presence of God and an undetermined future. Yeah. And that, all, I mean, do not try to start a megachurch with that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to work. I would make a terrible megachurch pastor. <laughs> hey, guys, it's going to get a lot worse probably, but who knows? <laughs> Stick with it, everyone. Stick with it. By the way, the plate will be coming by. <laughs> the metal bowl is going to travel <laughs> through the room tonight. Uh, uh, but, uh, Kate, yeah. you are a absolute treasure. We love you. We have been so thankful for the mark that you made and Tobin too in terms of the the, the genesis of Emmaus Way, uh, the, so many things that you were deeply a part of. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've prayed for you and will continue to do so. Um, you are journeying in space that is, is hard for us to imagine, laden with fear, but so incredibly marked with your own joy and your wit. I mean, Kate's, Kate, I think, is the first, uh, probably the first woman who's preached at Emmaus Way, I think, way back in the day. And I didn't know you very well. This was like maybe our second or third or fourth month. And I was overwhelmed with your wit. I was humor. like 12 years old. Thanks for letting me do that. That was really nice. You had a driver's you license. Way too nice. You drove to <laughs> yeah. church uh, like, that sure, day. Preach. Sure, you know. And so, anyway, You're just what a, what, a, what a gift you are. To us, and oh, we're thanks, we are walking with you and 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 listening to you and learning from you. And I knew and, you all were praying for me, honestly. And thank you for being my peoples. I really appreciate that. Love you guys. So well, thanks. that's not hard for us to do. So thank you so hey, much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's been done here before. Usually a hammer is what we drop, but. Have you 
Absolution is comes from another uh, wonderfully insightful and intelligent uh, and beautiful Canadian, Alanis Morissette. Long 
So um, I want to look a couple people in the eye to say thank you. Mark, you're the first. Thank you. That was such a beautifully framed prayer for us in absolution tonight and confession. You are, this is Mark being Mark, but we're, we're really blessed around this community to uh, have you put words and feelings into uh, liturgical prayers for us. So thank you, Mark, for doing that. And Kate, you're my second uh, look in the eye. That was a gift to us. Thank you so very much. We love you very much. And um, I just as we approach the table tonight, um, one of the things that let us just underline it, we try to underline it every week, but how deeply formative in a radically re-narrating way this table is for us. Uh, I mean, I, we could, I, I could ask you, and you could fill in the blanks so beautifully on this, but the number of different stories that we engage by coming and serving each other, stories of abundance, of, of, uh, of non-exclusion, stories of welcomeness, of hospitality, of mortality, of all of these things. We do these every week, and we do believe that by performing these things, we are part of a community that is trying to live and be uh, differently as hope, uh, as in reality in this world. So again, I, I invite us to the table. Uh, let me invite us tonight with a prayer. Um, and um, Mark has already kind of given us a prayer. Uh, we will, Kate, uh, continue to pray for you on this journey and are thankful for the words that you've given us and uh, the, your presence in our lives and in this community. Let's pray. God, we, we come to you with um, expectations that are, are unmet sometimes. We want to know. We want to know why. We want to know where. We want to know how. We want to know what to. If we could just get the answers to that list, 
life would be so, so much uh, easier. Um, and uh, questions, Ebs, people here have asked, many of us, uh, you know, why, it, why is it so crappy? You know, why is it at times so wrong? Why is it so unjust? Why do we have to work so hard for your kingdom? Uh, but we continue to do so. And, and we are blessed at times with these visions of beauty and visions of hope. Uh, visions of uh, beauty that doesn't even connect with the reality that's offering those visions. Um, Kate has described those uh, powerfully to us tonight. And so we, we cling to your presence. We, um, we yearn for your presence. Um, and in many ways, we try to yearn in a way that's very antithetical in the ways that we've been taught to yearn for you, to, to control you with the right question, with the right learning, with the right attitude, the right prayer, the right visage, all of these things. May we reject those things uh, and in their place uh, replace them with deep community deep love, um, deep meaningfulness, uh, a commitment to uh, both rational and irrational beauty in the ways that we live our lives. And uh, we recognize this table that we celebrate tonight is one of those acts of both rational and irrational beauty. May we enjoy it in both ways. Uh, The irrationality of your presence in our lives and the deep rationality of a practice that forms us by uh, inviting everybody in this room to this table and receiving each other, embracing each other, speaking to each other in a holy way, remembering the stories that we hear, remembering the, the, the language that's given to us, either joyful or painful. And we pray for our beloved sister Kate, who we adore so much, and Tobin and their family as they journey in a space that's unforeseen for them. Uh, may your presence be overwhelmingly there um, in the tears and the joy, uh, in, the, in the wounds and the hope. Uh, may you be deeply, deeply, deeply present uh, uh, for them, and may we be uh, friends and family uh, to them in every way. In your name, Jesus, we pray, and we celebrate your table together. Amen.